0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Good evening, everyone. I'm Alison Camerota. Welcome to CNN Tonight. An investigator on the Gilgo Beach serial killing case calls the suspect a, quote, demon, tonight a flood of new evidence, but why did it take detectives more than a decade to put it together? Local reporters and our John Miller are here to tell us. And 80 million Americans under heat alerts. How long can humans live in 125 degree temperatures? CNN's Bill Weir is with us to explain what our leaders need to do now. And tonight we're learning more about what Donald Trump plans to do if he's reelected in 2024. It involves completely reshaping the power of the presidency. One of his former staffers tells us what that means. But first, Donald Trump has to deal with the various court cases and investigations that he's at the center of. The DOJ and Team Trump go back to court tomorrow to hammer out a trial date for his mishandling of classified documents. Here's what Donald Trump said Sunday about the judge in that case one that he appointed.
2: I know it's a very highly respected judge, a very smart judge and a very strong judge. Oh, you appointed her. I did. And I'm very proud to have appointed her. But she's very smart and very strong and loves our country. I mean, loves our country. We need judges that love our country so they do the right thing.
1: So let's begin there with tomorrow's news tonight. The judge in the case, Aileen Cannon, is telling both sides to be ready to discuss a trial date when they appear in her courtroom tomorrow. The DOJ wants this trial to happen fast. Team Trump hopes to delay a trial until after the primaries or even after the presidential election. So who will the judge side with? Let's bring in David Schoen, who was President Trump's defense lawyer in his second impeachment trial and was also approached by Team Trump about handling the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case but declined to do so. Also joining us, criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst, Joey Jackson. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Okay, so that soundbite that we just played, telling, Joey, just telling the judge, she's so smart, she's so strong, she loves the country. Are judges susceptible To flattery? I mean, does that affect, could that affect a judge's judgment?
3: Listen, I think everyone is somewhat susceptible to flattery, to be fair. But federal judges, like other judges, I mean, they're supposed to be about the law. Now, we do know, Alison, that there's been some issues as it relates to this judge based upon prior rulings that were favorable to Mr. Trump. Ultimately, appellate panel dealt with that issue involving the special master. I digress.
1: But but Um, overturned what she, so in other words, her judgment, people felt that she was siding with Team Trump and then an appellate panel overturned
3: her. unanimously. Uh, two of those judges in the appellate panel were appointed by mr. Trump. I think that 's significant, and that uh, I think judges have to be about the law. The only way for our system to work is not for judges to be influenced by any type of flattery, but to be influenced by what does the Constitution say, what do statutes, regulations, and rules say, and most importantly, what does a federal indictment say and what they're going to be doing here. And so I think this is what this will center around. It'll center around specifically tomorrow the issue that you mentioned in terms of what is an appropriate trial date, hearing things from both sides, Trump wanting to extend it, move it on, perhaps till after the presidential, presidential election. It's of justice saying, no, we need to do this now. And I think there's also some other significant issues concerning classified documents, how they're handled, how the jury handles them, how they're processed, what the public and gets we'll to get see. And we'll get to those in a yes. second.
1: But David, in terms of the uh, date, as I said, the DOJ wants it to happen soon. They're asking for a mid-December trial date. And Team Trump has uh, reasons to want to, to delay it and push it past the primaries, maybe even past the presidential election. So, which one do you think that Judge Cannon will side with, just given what's customary?
4: Well, what's customary, I think, is what they call, you know, split the baby. Um, I think that uh, the, the date the government has in mind is an aggressive date. It's uh, certainly shorter than normal in a federal criminal case, even in a, a, an ordinary case. But uh, I think, you know, uh, I think it's going to be somewhere in between. I'm not sure it should be a function of the election, although I think that's important to the American people. I think the real issues here are the volume of discovery, the Classified Information Procedures Act, issues that complicate things extraordinarily, and uh, motions practice in this case. Um, You know, the special prosecutor said that uh, it's really not a novel case. It's a very simple case. I don't think that's fair. We've never really encountered the tension between a former president Uh, and his view of documents and the Espionage Act. So there's certainly novel issues, however one resolves
3: them.
1: But David, just to be clear, you don't think that the timing of the presidential election should play into this? I mean, as it gets closer to November 2024, isn't that a factor?
4: Sure, Sure. No, I think it's definitely a factor. I think it's politically a factor. But, you know, my focus generally in cases is on you know, sort of what the real mechanism is about uh, moving forward. There is a Speedy Trial Act. I think that uh, in the interest of the American people, it should be after the election. But I think that tomorrow a focus is going to be on the real nuts and bolts of this case and what, how that drives the date. And I think that's it's extraordinary. You know, you're talking about 57 terabytes of uh, uh, images, at least so far. We say normally the Library of Congress print connect collection is 10 terabytes of data. It's not really fair to compare data and images. And maybe it's more than that. But this is a whole lot of information, 833,000 pages so far to review. It's not it wouldn't be normal to put that to trial hmm. within six months.
1: That is those are some. Uh, sobering numbers that you just threw at us. But Joy, back to why this is so delicate a case. So in terms of even the discovery, even having to present to the other side the materials that you're talking about, unless you have security clearances, you can't show them the classified and top-secret documents... And does Donald Trump still have those security clearances? Because I know Walt Nada does not, his <laughs> co defendant
3: Yeah, I, I think what's important is whether the lawyers who are accessing the information have the requisite security clearances and are able to evaluate the information. It's an interesting question, though, Allison, because certainly cases are governed by the ability for defense attorneys to dissect the discovery, evaluate it, make determinations upon how they can use it to their client's advantage, for prosecutors to share that discovery with them. Here, there's more complications because that's classified information. But now you have this interesting balance about whether or not the judge should take into account a presidential election. And I'm torn on it for the following reason. On the one hand, I mean, trial should proceed in accordance with a schedule that's appropriate for everyone to evaluate and be prepared. On the other hand, you don't want the public to lose trust of the system. Critical to our legal system, although it should be apolitical, should be apolitical, is people buying in. And will they buy in if the judge just says, Nothing to see here. Keep moving forward. Forget about the presidential election. It has to factor into some degree the extent to which it factors in is an open question. I just think it shouldn't. The judge shouldn't be too deferential to that process, but should be deferential to the process of making sure everyone's fully prepared to move forward on a date certain. That should be the criteria.
1: Joey, David, thank you both very much. We'll be watching very closely what happens tomorrow in court. Let's bring in now former Trump White House Deputy Secretary Sarah Matthews. Sarah, great to see you. Um, I don't know if you heard that soundbite that we played at the beginning of former President Trump complimenting uh, Judge Cannon. She's so strong. She loves the country so much. She's so smart. Um, I know that we've heard him do things like this. This is a device that he sometimes uses when he wants to curry favor with someone or manipulate them. How did you hear that? Exactly
5: what you said. It sounds like he's heaping praise on her in hopes that she will rule in his favor tomorrow. And I think that this just goes to show that Trump is all about loyalty. He thinks that this judge owes him something because he put her in this position. And so therefore, in his eyes, she should rule in his favor. I believe in that same um, interview, he even said something along the lines of that she should, quote, do the right thing or people who love this country do the right thing. And he went on to say that she loves our country. And so it just goes to show he's kind of putting out this thinly veiled threat of um, wanting her to, quote, do the right thing tomorrow. And um, I think that hopefully she's going to
1: ignore that and um, do what's best for the case. Sarah, there was this really interesting uh, New York Times article about what Donald Trump and his team are planning if he were to win the primary and then win the presidential election in 2024. And basically, it's to consolidate presidential power. Um, He, you know, didn't feel basically that he was powerful enough last time around and had to share it with other branches, power with other branches of government. And he would try to change that. And here are some of the things that they focus on. These are actual plans. I mean, this is they're not they're not um, running away from this reporting. This is is uh, what they say they want to do. Bring independent agencies like the FTC, the FCC, under presidential control. Refuse to spend money that Congress has appropriated for certain programs that Donald Trump doesn't like. That practice was banned under President Richard Nixon, by the way. Um, Strip uh, basically basically allow, scour the intelligence agencies and the State Department and other defense agencies to remove some of uh, Donald Trump's perceived enemies. What do you make of those plans?
5: You know, I've been sounding the alarm for a long time that I think that Donald Trump is a threat to our democracy. I resigned on January 6th because I was so disgusted with his lack of action that day and his lies about the election. And I think that this just goes to show that he wants to erode our democracy. He wants to do away with our system of checks and balances, and he wants to consolidate power and essentially have a dictatorship. And Donald Trump is not running his 2024 campaign to empower Americans. He He just wants more power for himself if he were to become president ever again. And so my hope is that uh, he will never have that chance and that either someone will beat him um, in the nominating contest and be the Republican nominee. Obviously, that doesn't look to be the case right now. And he's the front runner. And that is really concerning to me.
1: And Sarah, people like you and Alyssa Farrah Griffin and Stephanie Grisham have spoken out about having a breaking point and leaving and never wanting to work in those conditions um, again for Donald Trump. But other people are still with him. Who? How hard would it be, do you think, if he were to win, for him to assemble a staff and get people to go along with him? I think
5: that I get asked that question a lot in terms of, you know, how did you work for Donald Trump um, back in uh, you know, his first administration? Because I wanted people Uh, of good character like myself, like Stephanie Grisham and Alyssa Farrah Griffin to be surrounding him, people who would give him good, solid advice. And what I'm most worried about and what we saw at the end of his uh, administration was that he stopped listening to people um, who weren't telling him what he wanted to hear. And he started listening to people who were feeding into his worst instincts. And that is my worry as well. If he were to ever win the presidency again, is that the folks that would be surrounding him would not be people of good character. And I think a lot of the folks who are sticking by his side aren't doing so in the best interest of our country. I think they're doing so in the best interest of their own careers.
1: Sarah Matthews, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Thank you. A new flood of evidence in the Gilgo Beach serial killer case, including a doll reportedly found in the suspect's house and hundreds of guns. We'll break down everything we learned today about this case and why police thought the suspect was getting ready to strike again. Investigators are finding a ton of evidence in the Gilgo Beach serial killings on Long Island. A source tells CNN that officials found between 200 and 300 firearms in a walled off vault behind a locked metal door in the suspect's basement. 59-year-old Rex Yerman was arrested and charged with murder in these killings, the killings of three of the women whose remains were unearthed near Long Island's Gilgo Beach in 2010. He has pleaded not guilty to the killings of Melissa Barthelemy, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello.
0: I
3: can't begin to imagine the pain that These families have had to endure over the last decade and to know that this demon was capable of doing such an evil act to these families is just, you know, beyond uh, comprehension.
1: The suspect reportedly had only one question at jail after being arrested last week. He said, quote, is it in the news This is according to a source there. Joining me now is Anthony DiStefano. He is a legal affairs and criminal justice reporter for Newsday on Long Island. Also CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller is here and Alexis Linkletter host of Unrevealed Long Island serial killer on our sister network ID. Great to have all of you. John, why did it take 10 years to come up now, evidence is coming to the fore. Police say that they're gathering all sorts of new evidence. Why did it take more than a decade for, to put all this together?
6: You know, the Suffolk County Police homicide detectives worked on this for a long time and used every tool at their disposal. They got the FBI to come in and do a profile. They did some telephone work um, for the Suffolk County Police, but. When the new commissioner came in, Rodney Harrison, who was the chief of detectives of the NYPD and then chief of department, and he took over Suffolk County, he said, let's bring everybody in. Let's bring in the state police. They have unique capabilities. Let's bring in the the sheriff. Um, They have access to people in prison, informants and so on. Let's bring in the FBI. Um, And they formed the task force. And then... Using all of those capabilities, they literally broke it down to, let's start with the phone work. We know the bad guy had a phone and that he called, you know, victims' families and that he, you know, uh, made other calls. And they fanned out from that to say, who can we compare who calls from these two locations to? We have one witness who gave us a description. Let's look for people who fit
1: So there was a witness, who, a physical description of him or the, ve- the car Both. that he
6: was driving? Both. So what do we get? We get three things. We have a description of a guy. We have a description of a car and we have um, and we have the, you burner, know, phones. Uh, the burner phones. Yeah. Can we put a burner phone and that car or a burner phone and that person together? And then a state police investigator running the car in a different way through different databases finds a green pickup truck that matches to a person who lives within that box and then the burner phones, and the rest, as they say, is history. The DNA, of course, closing the loop.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, Anthony, I know you've been talking to some of the neighbors in where this guy, Rex Uerman, is from, uh, in his neighborhood. What do they say about him?
2: Well, they were, of course, very surprised, very stunned, very shocked. They thought he was just sort of an average Joe, a little
7: sort of quirky in the neighborhood. Their house was not very kept, kept very well,
1: uh, a bit eccentric. Which is uh, a little strange for an architecture an, an, of course, yeah, an architect or an think, architectural consultant. You would think they'd be more compulsive about appearances and structure,
2: but uh it wasn't that way.
1: But did they say I've read some reports that, that that he was at times combative. Did you did you hear that from anyone? I've heard those
2: reports as well. Yeah.
1: So not the nice guy in the neighborhood. No, he didn't even look as a nice guy. He may not have been that communicative, but he was had that sort of big, doughy look, uh, and people sort of thought he was a little intimidating. Yes, I did read that. that some people thought that he was menacing, uh, maybe even beyond, beyond just his stature. Um, so, Alexis, you know, I know that lots of people had tried to crack this case and tried to profile who it might be. And so did anybody get close?
5: no nobody got close and i think what's really frustrating about this entire thing and how it's unfolded is that none of this evidence that they have is new this is all evidence we've had since 2010 um and it begs the question why did it take 13 years to get here um and it just calls into question the previous administration that was in control of the case in 2010 and we know the police chief at that time was corrupt he ended up in jail so did the d.a Uh, James Burke and Tom Spoda, and it's frustrating. Had they done their jobs, these families of these victims could have suffered a lot less time. It's just very frustrating.
1: Yeah. Um, John, there were other bodies, as you know, found in this same vicinity. Is there any reason other than location to believe that it's the same suspect? Does it have some of the same telltale signs?
6: So some of those cases um, bear looking at um, one of them is an infant, uh, a toddler. So that's kind of the, the one that doesn't fit with the rest of the pieces. Um,
1: and one's a man.
6: And, and one's a man. But you really have to ask this question, right, Ali? It's uh, how many people were using that same stretch of road as a burial ground for murder victims? It's not common for serial killers or other offenders to kind of have a joint burial ground. Um, on the other hand, it's a very dense area, and there are a few deserted areas around, and this is one of them. But um, they are now they have an advantage, which is they have a house full of forensic evidence that they're collecting from and a storage area beyond that and perhaps other locations to be found and what they were able to take from him based on a search warrant for DNA and hair. So there will be a lot more things to compare to maybe bring those cases together.
1: Friends, thank you very much. We appreciate all of your expertise in this. And this is obviously not the last time we'll be talking about this story. We're just getting started basically with this. Okay, what does Maryland's former governor, Larry Hogan, think about a third party run for 2024? He's here and he'll answer next. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is teasing that he could enter the presidential race as a third party candidate. The speculation growing at an event for the centrist, nonpartisan group No Labels today. Manchin insists he will not be a spoiler, but plenty of Democrats disagree. Joining me now is former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. He's also the national co-chair for No Labels. Governor, great to have you.
7: Great to be with you. Thank you.
1: So um, let's talk about third party, third parties and third party candidates. Um, That's a very appealing, I think, idea to lots of Americans. It's very tempting. It comes up, as you know, every four years. People think, wouldn't it be great to have another option? But in reality, (laughs) explain how the math works, particularly for 2024,
7: Sure. Well, the math usually doesn't work and, and rarely ever has worked, but I think we're in a very unique moment in time where an overwhelming majority of Americans uh, really don't like the two potential choices that it looks like they may be faced with. In fact, 70% of the people in America do not want a rematch of 2020. They don't want Biden and Trump to be the next president. And so I get it. It's a it's a tall order. Uh, but the, 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 the efforts of no labels today is really about laying out a common sense, bipartisan agenda and trying to get people to be will, willing to work together and reach across the aisle to come up with you know, real solutions. And that's that's the, the basic part of it. But look, if uh, if most people do not want uh, candidate A and candidate B, it may open up. Uh, Certainly, there's no guarantee of it. But the thought is that there may have to be an insurance policy, a kind of in case of emergency break glass where we offer the American people another choice.
1: Well, that's interesting because I have heard you talk about this uh, emergency break glass scenario. And do you consider in terms of, let's say, your own possible run, do you consider the leading Republican candidate having been twice indicted? and uh, various uh, other investigations swirling around him. Would you consider that a break glass moment?
7: Well, if if Trump were to be the nominee, that certainly would be a break glass moment. I'm still focusing my efforts, and I have been for many years now, of trying to get the Republican Party to move in a different direction. I'm still hopeful that we can find uh, a, a strong candidate that can challenge him, that can win the nomination, and go on to win the election in November. I mean, it doesn't seem that like that's going to happen today, but we're a long way off, and you know, uh, a year is an eternity in politics, and we'll be looking at what happens in the primaries next spring.
1: Have you ruled out a run?
7: Well, I made the decision back in the spring to not seek the Republican nomination. Um, I, I, I have not completely ruled out the possibility of of this. It's not something I'm focused on. It's not something I'm really giving a lot of serious consideration to, but. Look, if we get to the point where, you know, someone's got to have the courage to put the country first, they're talking about potentially putting a unity ticket where a Republican and Democrat would say, you know what, for the good of the country, we're going to run together. And it's not something that I'm actually giving a lot of thought to, but I haven't ruled it out.
1: Hmm. Um, in terms of the math, as you know, um, President Trump lost some pivotal battleground states like Georgia, Arizona. Um, I think Wisconsin, by a very slim margin, something like 44,000 votes. So how can a third party, being so new, not be a spoiler if that were, again, the case?
7: Well, I can tell you there's not a soul in uh, the No Labels organization that has any intention of being a spoiler. I certainly would not do anything to try to tip the election in Donald Trump's favor favor. I don't think Joe Manchin or Joe Lieberman or any of the other people involved would do it either. Um, but look, right now, 70% do not want Biden or Trump. 59% have said they would consider a third alternative. 49% of the people in the country are registered independent. And a, a new poll came out today that, that really it showed uh, that you know, 30, 33% say they'd vote for Trump, 32% say Biden, and 31% say they would vote for neither. So it's, it's not being a spoiler. It's about you know, that this group is only interested in running if we could actually win and bring the country together.
1: Um, I want to ask you about an interview that our Caitlin Collins just did, and that was with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Um, As you know, he was no fan of the way Donald Trump conducted himself after he lost the 2020 election. Um, But he says that he would vote for Donald Trump again if he's the GOP nominee. I just think it might surprise some people that you would work to help get him elected, given your
5: history with him.
7: Well, I would ask a lot of people. I mean, I, you know, I have people that say, you know, I just can't go there and do that. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, the next president's going to be picking probably another Supreme Court justice and, you know, uh, judges on the Court of Appeals and federal judgeships and, you know, dealing with strengthening our military and standing up to our adversaries around the world. And who do you want? To, who, who would you want to be your president?
1: What do you think of that logic?
7: Well, look, Brian Kemp's a, a good friend and somebody I admire. I was really involved in trying to help him make sure he w- uh, won that primary when Donald Trump was trying to, you know, oppose him. I, I, don't, I don't begrudge him for having that opinion. He's certainly entitled to that. There are a lot of people in the Republican Party that would vote for Trump if he was the nominee. I don't have to be one of them. I mean, I, I, I just don't. I think he's disqualified himself from, from being our next uh, president.
1: Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, thank you very much for your time. Great to talk to you tonight. Thank you. And it's not just former Governor Hogan who would consider a third-party run in 2024. One Democratic senator is also, we'll tell you what Senator Joe Manchin just said. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin playing coy about a third-party presidential campaign. But what he's not coy about his thoughts on the far left's influence on the White House.
7: I think he's been pushed too far left. He knows that, uh, and we're still friends, we can talk. I just think that basically, in a lot of the ways they're interpreting and trying to implement pieces of legislation that never had the intent of what they're trying to do to make something that wasn't passed. So we have our differences. You have the ability to dialogue and to talk about it, but I think he's been pushed too far to the left. I don't think that's his inherent who he is as a person, and I think that he has the strength to fight back, and he will We'll see
1: okay, let's discuss this, and so much more with Rolling Stone columnist Jay Michaelson, pollster Lee Carter, and CNN senior political analyst Ron Brownstein. great to have all of you lee let's talk about this possible third party run for whomever, okay, so we just had Governor um, Larry Hogan on from formerly of well of Maryland um, and he did the math, and he sort of presented a compelling case that a third of the country doesn't want either Democrats or Republicans, so why not a third-party candidate? You are a number cruncher. Can it work? No, I don't think it can, because really, as much as we have about
8: 40% of Americans who say that they're independents, they're really not independents. We are mostly aligned with one or the other, and we might disagree on a certain issue. We might not like labels, but at the end of the day, it's really hard to go uh, to a third party, especially when the third-party candidates are as... Uninspiring, inspiring, I think, is the ones that we're looking at right now. I don't think they, they really are the kinds of people you can't keep your eyes off of, who are going to give you that kind of energy, who are going to stand for something that's going to change your mind that much. I just, I, I don't see it happening.
1: Ron? Well, I know yeah, that Yeah, I agree you, with
0: Lee. But, what, yeah,
1: but why? why? Why can it never well, work?
0: It, it can't work largely because of the Electoral College. Even if you can draw an audience, as Ross Perot did. In 1992, when he won about 20% of the vote, he didn't win a single state because so so many states now tilt so strongly toward one side or the other. Allison, 40 states have voted the same way in the past four presidential elections. That's a higher percentage of states voting the same way than even in the four elections that Franklin Roosevelt won consecutively. There simply is no path to 270 electoral college votes for a third-party candidate. And that means the only thing they can do is tip the election toward one side or the other. And given the fact that Donald Trump has never gotten past forty-seven percent of the uh, of the vote. Uh, the odds are very high that if there's a serious third-party candidate uh, and he is the Republican nominee, he is the one who would be the most advantaged by it, no matter who the candidate is.
1: But Jay, as I was telling Governor Hogan, it is people are tempted by it. People, you know, voters are fickle, and people often say, "If only there were another way, there were a third party." And so it's just the system that's preventing it from happening. And for instance. RFK Jr. Uh, people, he's getting like twenty percent in the polls. People are intrigued when somebody breaks the mold.
9: Well, like President Biden is not a popular incumbent right now, so there's a lot that's specific to this cycle. But I think the previous comment is really important. This is a great time to talk about the anti-democratic, small D democratic nature of the Electoral College. Uh, my friend Jesse Wegman at the New York Times wrote a wonderful book about let's abolish the like let the people vote. We should abolish the Electoral College. This is one of the many ways in which the Electoral College freezes into place a system that does not. Meet most Americans where they are. And but it is true, you know, I was even listening to Governor Hogan's comments earlier. You know, at when push comes to shove, there are issues that just divide Republicans and Democrats. The ideology, ideology of Supreme Court justices and federal judges, some quite, you know, I certainly don't think that Joe Manchin, who almost stopped the most important climate change legislation in this country, speaks for the center of America, which is concerned about climate change and doesn't want somebody, you know, in cl- such close relationship with the coal industry to, to be leading this country. You know, the, at, when push comes to Shove. There are kinds of these defining issues, and in addition to the electoral college, I, I agree that it's just very difficult. People say they flirt with you know a third party candidate, but ultimately they come down. You know where they come down.
1: Lee, let's talk about RFK Jr. Uh, for a moment. He um, has caused controversy. The New York Post has a video of him making a claim about COVID nineteen. He says in part, "quote In fact." COVID-19, there's an argument that it is ethnically targeted. COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasians and black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese. Um, And yet, as we've talked about, he's polling higher than a lot of the other candidates.
8: Yeah, I mean... It's somewhat shocking that he's doing as well as he is up until this moment, especially if you look at some of his track record when it comes to vaccine, some of the things that he said, he's he's pretty far out there. So um, it was only a question of time, I think, before he stepped in something. This one, I think, is going to be really hard for him to step out of. His entire family is basically on on social media right now, distancing themselves from him. He's trying to say this was taken out of context. The question was asked of me. This isn't what I said. Uh, but I think it's going to be an issue for him. And I don't think he was real threat to begin with, but I think he just points to the fact that there is an appetite for somebody besides Joe Biden, and there's an appetite for somebody who's going to bring up some different kinds of ideas out there. Rabbi Michelson, your thoughts?
9: (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's often said that as soon as someone wades into the conspiracy swamp, they're eventually going to end up with anti-Semitism, and that happened here, right? This is Anti-Semitism is one of the oldest conspiracy theories uh, in our civilization, that there is a cabal of people secretly controlling the world. And when you enter into these kinds of non-factual, sort of, you know, free associative conspiracy theories, eventually, yeah, you encounter the uber conspiracy theory. And so, you know, as a rabbi, of course, this is deeply offensive. It's fine to kind of make fun of RFK Jr. to a certain extent, but this is not funny, right? And uh, Lee and I were talking before, we know people who in the Jewish community who got very ill with COVID very early on, where in New Rochelle in New York, uh, one of the major first sites of outbreak was in was centered around an Orthodox Jewish community there. And so the idea at that time, Jews were accused of spreading the plague. Now we're somehow immune from the plague. And this is one of the oldest anti-Semitic themes in the book, and it is absolutely reprehensible.
1: Uh, Friends, thank you very much. Ron, I owe you one. Thank you as well. Really appreciate you guys being here tonight. We have a CNN exclusive. Florida governor and GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis is going to join Jake Tapper one-on-one on on the campaign trail. This interview begins 4 p.m. tomorrow on CNN. All right, and check this out. You're looking at tourists flocking to the flaming mountains in China, where on Sunday, temperatures reached 176 degrees. Bill Weir is here with me to tell us what's going on with the extreme heat and what our leaders can do. Close to 80 million Americans under heat alerts today, especially in the Southwest, where temperatures have been dangerously hot for 38 consecutive days. The heat continues to break records. Listen to this. More than 1,500 places in the U.S. have experienced record high temperatures so far this month. Phoenix may be the hottest. The city just suffered its 18th consecutive day at 110 degrees or higher. And the heat is on worldwide. China sent it, set an all-time national high temperature yesterday at 126 degrees. And a top climate group is warning of worldwide, quote, heat hell. What can we do about all this before it's too late? Our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, joins me now. Okay, Bill, let's talk about why we're in this mess. So I know there are a couple of factors. One of them is El Nino. So explain what that is. And once that passes, can we go back to some level of normality?
2: (laughs) You'd you'd like to hope, right? I would like to. Well, uh, there's La Nina, which is sort of a natural air conditioning in the oceans, And then there's El Niño, which is the opposite, a heating phenomenon, and it cycles every three or four years between the two. And the oceans have been covering a multitude of our sins for a long time. If you imagine heating up a cool bathtub with one kettle at a time of boiling water, you're not going to feel it for the way you would if you splash it on your foot, right? And so the the, the oceans have been absorbing this, hiding it really from us, the full extent of it. And then when La Niña is replaced by El Niño, boom, we're seeing these records. And so these These heat domes, these blobs that we're now experiencing on land, that's been going on around the ocean. But now it is spread out so much that by September, the prediction is, is half of the world's oceans will be in a category three or four on a scale of five marine heat wave. So half of the planet of our watery planet will be overheating. Enormous uh, knockoff effects on fisheries and coral reefs and even hurricanes, of course, get stronger when the water is warmer.
1: The temperatures, let's just look at China, Northwest China, 126, 100, uh, roughly around 125, 126 this week. Yes. So how are people supposed to live in those conditions?
2: You can't. I mean, that's what's so interesting. I mean, even in Phoenix, if you stay over 110 for two weeks, you know, you, you, you can't send your kids outside. You know, for summers, you know, it's it's it changes... Crops, it changes agriculture, it changes so many things. Working outside, what it does to the body, the wet bulb temperature at a certain humidity, your organs begin to fail at a certain point. And we've seen young 40-ish, 35-year-old mailmen in Texas dropping dead from the heat. A, tra- a, w- a rail worker in Italy uh, perished under the heat. Um, and so it is, the, it is the biggest killer more than all other natural phenomenon combined or unnatural these days.
1: So is there anything that heads of state or we as individuals can do now?
2: Well, it's interesting you mentioned the heat in China. So John Kerry, uh, the climate envoy for the United States, just restarted negotiations with China. These are the two top polluters. If they're not talking, nothing gets done for the rest of the developing world. So it's good that that is thawed since Nancy Pelosi made them, China angry with her visit to Taiwan. But I want you to hear what John Kerry went through back at home. Now, over there, he's trying to convince the Chinese to put a target on how much methane they're going to release, which is a really bad planet baking gas, and to stop burning so much coal. But back at home, he's facing Republicans with questions like this. This is last week. You want to have, the, uh, have uh, the American taxpayers, my constituents that are having a hard time afford their groceries,
3: pay for a car, buy a new home, spend $1.6 quadrillion to fix a problem that A, doesn't exist, and as a matter of fact, you might be exacerbating because it's unknown.
2: Why do you think 195 countries in the world, they're prime ministers, their are presidents? Because they're grifting they're- like you are, sir.
1: How can you say the problem doesn't exist?
2: That has been sort of the, the ideology of, of the party, you know, that has the most support from oil and gas interests, fossil fuel interests. And ultimately, you ask what can be done. That is decision ultimately is a hand of the C-suiters from Sodia Aramco, Exxon Mobil, the members of the Petroleum Club in Houston— there is a small number of relatively small number of massive petrostates and, and corporations that are causing the most of this problem, and they're making record profits right now and see no show no signs of changing that business model. Uh, so what has to happen? How much pain has to be felt for them to lose the public license to keep doing that? And it's interesting. People don't picket gas stations. Climate activists don't picket you know places that fuel our lives right now because we're so inter- dependent on these things. But the options, the clean options, are now there in droves and are so economical that it's outstripping any, any sort of old fossil fuels. It's just a matter of how fast the world and how justly the world can shift over because it just is a simple problem, and The more stuff we burn, the hotter it's going to get.
1: Bill, where you always open our eyes? I hope so. You always do. Thank you so much. <laughs> Great to have you on tonight. Anytime. Thanks so much for watching us on CNN Tonight. Our coverage continues now.